This morning the scripture reading is found in 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter, and the verses from 10 to 13. And as Samuel was offering up the burnt offerings, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on the day upon the Philistines, and discomfited them, and they were smitten before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mishpah and pursued the Philistines, and smote them until they came under Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mishpah and Shen, and called the name of it Ebenezer, saying, Hitherto has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they came no more into the coast of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. May the Lord add his blessing to these words. Well, thank you, Alex, for reading that scripture. It's hard to believe that I've been here four and a half years because that means that it's been at least a couple of years since I did the sermon series from 1 Samuel 6. And I think I started in actually chapter 4 back then. It's an interesting story. And the focus or theme of the sermon had to do with how we handle the fact that sometimes we feel like God isn't active. God isn't there, he's not present, he's not hearing us, he's not acting in our lives. And if we're human, I think, anyway, most of us have had that as a human experience. It doesn't reflect reality necessarily, but it's what we think or what we feel in a given moment. And it was the story of the capture of the Ark of the Covenant and the ensuing troubles that it made for the Philistines and the way in which it was returned And just to recap how it came back, it was rather interesting. When the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant, they understood that they now had control over Israel because the God of Israel would be under their control. They didn't understand that they didn't control gods. Uh, God controlled things for himself. And so as the Ark of the Covenant is in this profane country and place, things begin to happen in all of the major five Philistine cities in which the ark travels to. And after it has been in a city for a while, of course, they can't wait to have it because it's a symbol of their power over the Israelites, their victory over the Israelites, the control they have over the Israelite God, and all of this sort of stuff. And it's a way of showcasing, as it were, the greatest victory in recent memory. But at each city in which the ark travels, people find themselves universally plagued with two phenomena. And you think about these, and they are massively unpleasant. One is rats. Now, I don't know about you, but I hate rats. They are scary, despicable, ugly, infested, contagious little mammals that pervade and anyway you may like rats I know that some of you were born in the year of the rat my apologies for the Chinese calendar there that said 
rats ran through the city rampant, and you can imagine what, what chaos that created. Uh, women would not get off the cabinetry. They were screaming. Men were trying to kill them with shovels running around the house. The kids were yelling. As, anyway, it was, it was not good in, in Philistia. The other thing that everybody got universally was, anybody remember? Hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids. <laughs> Ooh, not funny. And so you can imagine that after a short stay of the Ark of the Covenant, a given city town in Philistia could not wait to send the Ark of the Covenant on to the next group of people. Well, by the time it had made its rounds through the five major cities of Philistia, they were ready to send it back, but they didn't want to admit defeat in that way. And they really felt that these rats and hemorrhoids were a sign of God, that they were doing the wrong thing. But they didn't want to give up that easily. So they put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart and attached it to two cows or oxen that had just given birth to calves. They penned up the calves so that the calves could not walk with them and said, if it is the doing of God, then these mother oxen, these mother cows will walk straightway to Israel and deliver the Ark of the Covenant back to them for us. But if it is not an act of God, then they will not go. Well, that was loaded pretty heavily. How many cows would voluntarily leave their pen calves and walk to a great distance to another, another city? Not many. In the meantime, the Philistines had recalled the story of deliverance from Egypt. How when the Israelites escaped because of their God from slavery in Egypt and were headed out to the promised land, that the Egyptians were so glad to see them go at the end of the plagues that they begifted them with all sorts of precious things, gold and silver and jewels and so forth, to send them on their way. Kind of a lump sum payment for 400 years of slavery. So the Canaanites decided in order not to offend Yahweh, they had better do the same thing. And their way of doing things, and by the way, you can see this archaeologically if you go to the Middle East uh, and you go to Asia Minor. Uh, in Corinth, for example, there were baths that people took that were designed medicinally to relieve, oh, let's say, um, what's a, STDs, okay? And so... What people commonly did was make a model of the affected organ. So you will find uh, clay representations of affected organs uh, archaeologically in some of these sites where these, these curative baths were. Well, the Philistines had a similar sort of idea or culture, and so what they did was they made golden rats and golden hemorrhoids and they put these golden items on the cart with the Ark of the Covenant to send back to Israel as a gift to the God Yahweh, if indeed it was him doing all this. Because they didn't have a cure, and they, didn't, they did not want to mess with this anymore. It could get worse, not better, right? Well, if you remember the story, the oxen do take the cart and go back into Israelite territory. The Israelites take the cart, take the, uh, the Ark, and store it, in the home of one of the Levites there. They chop up the ark. They put the wood on an altar. They slaughter the cows and offer them as a burnt offering to their God. 
and they rejoice because the presence of God is once again the symbol of God's presence is once again among them. And the resolution of the sermon a couple of years ago was the idea that even though it felt like nothing was happening, God was at work because the Philistines had the ark for a fair period. Anyway, so now we get to chapter seven and there's a new story emerging. It's a continuation, but a different theme. It points us to something that needs to be remembered. And the thing that we always forget that we need to remember is the way that God acts in the world. That's what we need to be reminded of. And I think probably that's true today more than ever. We don't live in a theocracy. We don't have priests with Urims and Thummims. We don't have annual sacrifices and a high priest who has a rope tied around his ankle as he goes into the Holy of Holies and ministers to mediate sins on our behalf. We have a high priest in Jesus Christ. And so there's a whole different feel about the way we practice religion than the way in which the ancient Israelites practiced religion. We aren't privy to seeing the ark of the covenant inside the Holy of Holies, inside the tabernacle with the presence of the pillar of fire by night or the pillar of cloud by day hovering over that spot in the sanctuary of the desert. We have many fewer, it would seem, visible reminders of God's action and activity and the way in which he works in our lives. The particular theme that I want to extract for you today is the way in which God takes on the battle of life for us. You see, at Memorial Day time, as was pointed out already, we as a nation are engaged in remembering the sacrifices made, particularly those who've died. We have an Armed Forces Day, we have a Flag Day, we have a Veterans Day. These things honor the living. But a Memorial Day remembers the dead. A Memorial Day says we want to remember and honor those who have sacrificially given for our freedom, for our country. To them we owe a particular and profound debt of gratitude. And spiritually that gets extended to the sacrifice of Christ for Christians at this time as well. Just coming off of the Easter experience, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the grace that that brought us all, the way in which through the act of one man, so many of us are touched and healed and saved. The miracle of that kind of gift and consecration, that kind of love and that kind of valuing if you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 7, we'll get a better feel for the story. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord. They took it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. Now, Abinadab is likely a priest, certainly a Levite, and his son is now being consecrated as a guard. 
The next subtitle says, Samuel subdues the Philistines at Mizpah. It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim. And all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of the Lord, If you are returning to the Lord with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit yourself to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and their asterisks and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. And when they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mizpah. When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out or the Lord our God to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and drew them into such panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth When Samuel took a stone, then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, he named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines, and there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mizpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was. And there he also judged Israel. And there he built an offer, an altar to the Lord. Well, a lot of things going on in this story. It's worth unpacking. You recall that in the process of retrieving the ark, chapter 6, and getting it to this uh, place of rest, Some 70 men died of Israel. They died because they had chosen to look inside the ark. And this is, of course, where Indiana Jones's story myth comes from. But these men die because they are not permitted to look inside the ark of the covenant. They are not consecrated priests. They are not keepers of the ark. They are simply townspeople who have taken it upon themselves to rescue the ark and have handled it inappropriately. Well, it's a very serious penalty. And they cry out to God. And they decide that they will do a better job. And that's why it ends up in a home of a priest and stays there for a long time because nobody wants to deal with it. But the problem with that is the rest of Israel mourns because it's not in the tabernacle where it needs to be. It's not in the Holy of Holies where it belongs. 
Now, in the story, it says it was there 20 years, and I believe that it probably was, although there's some argument about that because it was David who brought the ark out of the home back to the temple, back to the tabernacle. And David's reign happened more than 40 years after this incident. Saul was king, according to Scripture, for 40 years. So there's some question about the timeline there. But you can imagine the better part of an adult lifetime the uh, presence of the Lord being in the wrong place. But Samuel judges Israel. He goes from place to place in these cities, gathering uh, people to hear their stories, to judge between them, administering justice, acting prophetically, offering sacrifices, and so forth. Being the spiritual leader of Israel prior to the age of the kings. When we get to the first part of seven in the story, we find a war that's going to continue. But before they can enter that time, Samuel has to clear up things that have gotten bad again since the uh, loss of the Ark of the Covenant. You see, the Philistines did not have their idea of controlling God or owning God in a vacuum Israel thought with the loss of the Ark of the Covenant that the presence of God was not with them either. And just as many of them during the time of Moses, while Moses was up on the mount for his 40 days and nights on on the first occasion at least, receiving the Ten Commandments, the people began to think that he had died, began to think that the Lord was not mindful of them anymore. And they began to demand that the gold and silver they had been given by the Egyptians be formed into a god for them to worship. And you recall Aaron was coerced into this or co-opted into this. A golden calf, a Baal, was constructed and the people worshipped a false god. You remember the result. The calf was ground to dust and thrown into the river. People made to drink. Thousands died. Moses shatters the commandments on rocks as he sees what the people are doing coming down. Because with Moses has been the reinstitution of monotheism. Moses is clear that there is but one God. Moses understands something about the nature of this God. As is written, he is a jealous God. And that no other gods come before him. And Israel now has relapsed, as it were, or fallen into the religious patterns of its neighbors. They've fallen into the cult of Ishtar, Ashtoreth, and Baal. Basically, in these pagan and ancient religions, I have difficulty, I want you to know, keeping each detail of each particular sect or cult clear. So if I mix some detail of this up, forgive me, but the essential nature of the religion was very similar to what it is now with the cult of the fertility god or male god symbolized by the bull rain is the bull god seeding the earth so to speak and you have then the symbol of the female god often portrayed as a, a, a woman unclothed and Ashtoreth is the feminine god goddess And you have a cult in which the activities of the gods are mimicked in temple rites 
that we would call today temple prostitution. The male participant is honored as an incarnation or representation of Baal. The female is acting as a female incarnation and representation of Ashtoreth. And you have these sort of temple mounds or sites up on hills in the Canaanite society. And Ashtoreth poles were raised to be markers or symbols of where these sacred places were. And so you have the ancient religion, and it's repeated in all different forms in Mesopotamia, in ancient Greece and Roman mythologies and so forth. And so Samuel takes this on. He says, we do not serve a multitude of gods. We do not worship representations of ourselves. There is a true God, Yahweh. And the transliteration of that is what? Jehovah? Do you remember? And Jehovah is depicted, interestingly enough, in uh, depictions, if you want to try to uh, go to the blasphemy of drawing a Jehovah, he's depicted very much as what other God? Anybody know? Who was the Roman God of the sea? Neptune. That is how Jehovah is often depicted as a Neptune with a trident. And he is the God of thunder or lightning. So he has in his hand the lightning. It's a very interesting depiction because in this particular story, it is God who thunders, casts lightning at the Philistines and confuses them and brings about a great victory. So you have these ancient understandings and, and, and Samuel says, we're not going to be worshiping false gods. You need to choose clean it up and turn back to the true God, to Yahweh, and he will hear you. If we repent, he will return to you. It's one thing to have the ark back. It's another thing to be worshiping the one and true God. And so a reform takes place. People agree that they're going to put away these gods, these false gods. They confessed we have sinned against the Lord and they put away their false gods interestingly enough word gets to the Philistines that Israel has assembled and they decide what an opportune time to attack them this repeats itself over and over again in Israel's history right up until uh, wars in, in the last 30 years in Israel When the Philistines heard that they had gathered, they sought to attack them. But Samuel said, stop crying, or do not stop crying out to the Lord, our God, for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. And he makes an offering, and he prays, and God hears. The Lord, Yahweh, thunders with loud thunder against the Philistines and drew them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelite. The men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued them, slaughtering along the way, all the way to Bethkar. Here's something significant. Remember that in 6, chapter 6, we discussed the difference between Iron Age and Bronze Age implements. Israel at this point was a Bronze Age country. They had bronze implements and weaponry. But the Philistines had managed to perfect iron 
And if you know metallurgy, iron is much stronger than bronze. This was the equivalent of modern tactical warfare gear against something a soldier might have worn, say, in 1950, at the beginning of the Korean conflict. There was no comparison. There was no equanimity between the types of equipments. It was a whole new age in warfare. So when the Philistines are coming to act upon Israel again, they are terrified because they know they are outgunned, so to speak, that their equipment is not adequate for the task of defending themselves. They are vulnerable. They are technologically behind. They are living in the Bronze Age during an Iron Age period. Now, I I give you this detail again because it's significant in terms of what the people are thinking and feeling and going through. They've reverted back to ancient practices, but they need to get back to the true God. They've lost their ark, but the ark has been returned to them. They have the ark, but it's not where it belongs, in the temple, in the tabernacle. They have a prophet who's a judge, but his role has been so spiritual that they're not sure what's going to happen militarily. And they're behind their neighbors whom they were supposed to have driven out and conquered. And these neighbors have taken over their cities and their lands. It's a very threatening time. It's a very bad time in Israel. They turn to the living God. They make their sacrifices. They repent of their idolatry. They declare Jehovah to be their God. And with lightning and thunder, he creates such panic and confusion that even though they're technologically inferior, Israel is able to rush out and run people through with their bronze swords and claim a victory in the name of God and Samuel. What Samuel does next is really, really important. He creates a little altar and he calls it an Ebenezer. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hitherto thy, what's the words? Pardon? Hither by thy help I've come. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come. You know the melody, right? That great hymn we sing? When it says we raise an Ebenezer, it's telling us that we have chosen to remember the help of God that has brought us to this point. We've chosen to remember the way in which God has acted in our lives that has brought us to this place. So Samuel raises an Ebenezer. He builds an altar. And it is remembered And here's the line that I want you to take with you. Thus far has the Lord helped us. The Philistines did not invade Israel territory again. I think sometimes we worry too much about whether the Lord is going to help us. I think the focus needs to be on remembering that thus far.
the Lord has helped us. And when we hold that in memorial, faith becomes ever so possible. Hope becomes ever so possible. Trust becomes possible. We're not reaching for something we have no experience with. We're reaching for something that has been the constant of our lives. Up till now, God has helped us. And I'd like to send you home with that memory. Help us today, Lord, to raise our Ebenezer put together something that says in our minds thus far has the Lord helped us that we might know and we might trust that you will go with us to the end we thank you for that we thank you that we can remember those who've gone before in sacrifice and service we thank you for them Amen